Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come tonight to your word, uh, please hide me that you would reveal Jesus. Reveal Jesus in an Old Testament chapter, for we know that Christ is everywhere in the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments. They are centric around Christ, his person, his work, his redemption. So again, teach us what we need to know this evening from the chapter 16 of Leviticus. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory. Amen. This message is called Yom Kippur, the Hebrew way of saying the year, the day, rather, of atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And it's based, as I said in my prayer, on Leviticus chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. There in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, we find the book of Leviticus. And I just want to point out that if Jesus doesn't come back for his church first, that the Jewish Day of Atonement will be October 21st this calendar year. October 21st, 2016 will be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And at sundown on that date, uh, all practicing Jews around the world will observe the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Yom is Hebrew for day. Kippur is Hebrew for atonement. So Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It is a day for Jews of resting. It is a day of worshiping. It is a day of fasting. It is a day of having one's personal and national sins atoned for and the most important ordinance day in the entire year for every Jew is Yom Kippur. Again, if Christ doesn't come back first, October 21st of this year. And as you find yourself in Leviticus chapter 16 with me, I just want to start by saying that when we come to Leviticus, we come to the time in Israel's history, historically, when God had just delivered them from slavery in Egypt, The law had just been given to them as a nation. The Mosaic law was their constitution. And the tabernacle has just been put up when the book of Leviticus uh, came into play. And Israel needed instructions from God on how to properly use the tabernacle that he was prescribing for them. And God gave them those instructions for the use of the tabernacle in the book of Leviticus. And once God's instructions were received, Israel could move on from Mount Sinai, where the law was given, to move on into the will of God, the plan of God, the journey of God that he had for them as a nation of some four million persons. And on the Day of Atonement theme, I do want us to consider Leviticus 16, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 34. I may skip over some verses for the sake of time, but I want to get to the main points of the verses of Leviticus 16 because they teach uh, on the Jewish concept of the Day of Atonement, and I want to integrate that teaching on the table of the Lord that is set before us as the church here in this church age that began on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and remains in play as an age until the rapture of the church, which is an any time now event, of course. And so when you look with me at Leviticus 16, I want to start by reading the first two verses. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Uh, First thing I'd like you to see is that the approaching of God was not, is not, and will not ever be casual, buddy-buddy, frivolous, careless, spontaneous. No, approaching God was, is, and ever will be serious. Approaching God is to be reverent, And even we could say approaching God is to be scripted. And those who approached God back at the time of Leviticus on their own terms instead of on God's terms were buried. They died and not of old age. There were funerals for the flippant within the nation of Israel. That's worth thinking about. We would do very well this evening to remember this whenever we approach God, and especially when we come to the communion table of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper, as we will tonight. If you hold your places in Leviticus 16 and go forward centuries to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, I'm sure you will remember when I share with you some verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that verses that may roll off a preacher's lips and may just uh, wash over believers' um, ears, but they are very poignant words. They are very weighty words. These are words that have gravity, seriousness, ought to promote sobriety and reverence in every child of God who hears them. Hear them again, maybe as if for the first time. 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 27 and following, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment and the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Paul instructed the ancient church at Corinth, which was a messed up church, you'll recall, all kinds of personal and corporate sin at the church at Corinth when Paul wrote the first letter to them. He basically says, you be very careful how you approach the communion table. You wait to eat when all eat. You wait to drink when all drink. You don't drink the wine to get drunk. You don't come to the table with known unconfessed sin in your life. You let the Holy Spirit examine you for unconfessed sin, that it might become known unconfessed to sin, that you might admit it as sin before you dare eat the bread and drink the cup. 
Because, Paul said, when you didn't do that, when you didn't judge yourselves properly before you came to the Lord's Supper, Corinth, some of you are weak, verse 30. Others of you are sick, verse 30, and a number of them slept, which was a very soft way of saying they had a funeral for them. They were struck dead. And so whether the approaching of God was for the nation of Israel post-Exodus, just after the giving of the law, as we read in Leviticus, or whether it's the approaching of the Lord at the communion table, the Lord's supper table for the church in the church age, like tonight, we would do well to remember that approaching God is a serious matter, that it is to be taken with the utmost of reverence and care. And so we go back to Leviticus 16 and read on from verses 1 and 2, which talk about two sons of Aaron who were struck dead back in the camp of the Israelites historically. We go on to verses 3 to 6. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on and he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for the sin offering and one ram for the burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, and and he may make atonement for himself and for his household. I will stop there to comment. Not only did one have to approach God God's way, one also had to have one's own sins covered before one made any sacrifices for anyone else's sins. The high priest had to wear a prescribed, more humble uniform. And he had to first sacrifice a young bull to atone for his own sins and for the sins of his wife and for the sins of his children. When we come to the Lord's table tonight, church, we must come humbly. We must come as needy people we must come freely acknowledging our own need for Christ's atonement. And when we come to our Lord's Supper this evening, we must come confessing any unconfessed sin that he makes us aware of before we take the elements. Don't dwell on other people's sins. Confess your own sins if you haven't already. The high priest historically had to get right along with his whole household right before God, before the high priest could help the rest of the nation get right on the day of atonement. And so we go on to verses 7 to 10. And he, that is Aaron, that is the high priest, and he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting, And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. 
But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement based upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat, as the scapegoat. You know, God, of course, is the perfect teacher. He uses object lessons both in the Old Testament as in this chapter and in the New Testament as in our Lord and Savior's parables and many other object lessons that Jesus used. God is the perfect teacher because God wants us to learn. And as the perfect teacher in this context of the history of Israel, as the perfect teacher, God used two object lessons. He used two visuals to help the Israelites to better understand the abstract and invisible realities of atonement. He used two goats. One goat was to die and to shed its blood to cover Israel's personal and national sins until Messiah would shed blood to retroactively cover all those personal and national sins that were temporarily atoned for by the goat. This slaughtered goat pictured the substitutionary blood atonement necessary for forgiveness. God said to Israel and God says to the church, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin because the life is in the blood. So one goat was to die by having its blood shed to cover Israel's personal and national sins. But the other goat was to live. And it was to wander away with the blessing of the high priest. It was to go free off into the desert as a visual teaching object lesson to the nation of Israel. This scapegoat, as they watched the lots be cast, the goat to be slaughtered identified, the goat to be slaughtered killed, its bloodshed, and the goat that was identified by the lot not to be slaughtered, to be set free by the high priest, and for it to meander off, fast or slow, whatever the goat chose to do, off into the horizon of the desert, it was to be an, a visual lesson to teach the nation that her sins were all removed. That the sins of the personal Jew and the sins of the national Jewish nation were atoned for by the goat that was slain and had its blood shed. And as the living goat wandered away in the freedom of being a goat, everyone in the four million person Jewish camp was to ponder that to ponder the freedom that atonement means when sin is forgiven. Have you pondered that lately? The Hebrew word for this very special day of atonement scapegoat is azazel. The azazel. This is a combination of the Hebrew word for goat and the Hebrew word for dupe. Depart, And so the Azazel goat was the goat which was to depart the camp alive. And this departing scapegoat was to remind Israel that her atoned for sins were removed far from her. And as that goat wandered or ran far enough over the horizon to be no longer seen, the individual Jew and the corporate four million nation of Jews could say our sins are forgiven. 
God holds those sins against us no more. Of course, in retrospect, with all of a completed Bible, in retrospect, as church-age believers in Christ, we now understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is both goats for us. Christ is both the goat who died and shed his blood on the cross, which was entirely necessary for our atonement, but Jesus Christ is also the goat who is alive, evidencing the fact that our sins are atoned for by his blood, that we are all forgiven, and that our sin has been removed as far from us as the east is from the west. Amazing. I want to skip ahead in Leviticus 16 to verse 20 to read verses 20 to 22. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all of their transgressions in regard to all of their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness." And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. You know, deserts are lonely places. Deserts are places of solitary confinement. Deserts are hard places to survive and almost impossible places in which to thrive. And scapegoats wound up in deserts. Always. The scapegoat always wandered off into a desert. Jesus Christ, who is our consummate, perfect scapegoat, wound up in a desert too. He wound up in a desert of abandonment temporarily from his Father when he bore your sins and my sins when Jesus carried all of our vile, blasphemous, hard-hearted, satanic sins, his Holy Father could not look upon him in those hours. He bore our sins upon himself on the tree. And for the first time in all of eternity, in that window of those hours on the cross, for the first time, there was disharmony in the Godhead There was estrangement in the Trinity. When Jesus Christ became sin for us, when he bore upon himself willingly all of our sins, God the Father, figuratively speaking, because God the Father is spirit and does not have a back, but figuratively, God the Father had to turn his back on God the Son while God the Son bore our sins upon himself. That was Jesus Christ's scapegoat desert. Desolation. Isolation. Pain. I taught you before that medically the real cause of Jesus Christ's death was not suffocation, which was the normal cause of death for all crucified victims. But Jesus' cause of death was a broken heart. When they speared under his ribcage and water and blood came out, it tells us that Christ's blood pump heart had broken 
letting blood into the pericardial sac of water. And so when the spear went in and water and blood came out, Jesus' heart ruptured. That was the cause of his death. And when Jesus Christ was in that desert as a scapegoat with his father's back turned upon him briefly and temporarily and there was estrangement in the Trinity, estrangement in the Godhead because of the sin of the human race and the perfect fellowship between God the Father, God the Son was broken, shattered, blocked. Even nature went sympathetic. The Palestinian daytime sky went night black. In the middle of the day, creation's sympathy pains with the pains of the Godhead. And the earth quaked, and the earth quaked so severely that graves in Jerusalem were opened, shook shook open, and dead believers were raised to life out of those graves and walked again, talked again, and ate again, and died again eventually. Sympathy pains because of the scapegoat's desert experience. And the Lord Jesus cried out, as you well know from the cross in that desert experience, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, the desert experience which your scapegoat endured out of love for you. That's what the table reminds us of. That Jesus, our scapegoat, experienced a desert experience along with the shedding of his blood and the dying experience. And at the table tonight, I'd like you to ponder the loneliness and the isolation which your Jesus went through as he willingly carried all of your sins far away from you into the desert of God's forgiveness. Your Yom Kippur, your day of atonement was Christ's crucifixion day. It happened just outside of Jerusalem on a skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. Still in Leviticus 16, let our eyes go down to verse 29. And this shall be a permanent statue for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble yourselves. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. 
Yom Kippur was to be a lasting ordinance. It says that in verse 29. It says that in verse 31. It says that in verse 34. And unregenerate Jews, Jews who are still looking for their Messiah, will begin to observe Yom Kippur sundown, October 21st, 2016. Do you know, though, how long the gift of Yom Kippur was to last until Messiah came, until the lamb for sinners slain burst on the scene, until God's ordained scapegoat emerged, until God's ordained uh, sacrificed goat emerged. Yom Kippur only had purpose, only had meaning until Christ appeared and was sacrificed. The Passover Lamb of God was sacrificed, we know from the New Testament, once for all time. All the blood that needed to be shed has been shed by Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. How long was the ordinance of Yom Kippur to last for Israel? Until the Passover lamb of God, the Messiah, was sacrificed once for all time on the cross, only until a once for all time atonement was won by Jesus Christ shed blood, only until the Christ final scapegoat carried away the sins of the people far away from us in the desert of God's grace and pardon. So really, really it's quite sad that millions and millions and millions of Jewish friends on October 21st, sundown, unless Jesus comes back first and unless they get saved before October 21st, it's really sad that millions and millions and millions of Jews will probably look to a true story of their past to be the remedy for their personal sin and their national sin when Jesus now is the only efficacious remedy for their personal sins and for their national sins. And it's rather pitiable that they will look back to literal goats and bulls when Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those animal sacrifices and when Jesus is the only sacrifice which God now accepts for the atonement of sins. I want to close this message on Christ being our Yom Kippur by just drawing some applications. It's really clear from verses 29 to 34 of Leviticus 16 that God intended Yom Kippur to change the Israelites who observed it. It's equally true that God intends for the Lord's Supper tonight to change you and me. For it not to be business as usual, not to be same old stuff, not to be something we just rotely do without thinking or worshiping or confessing. We see from Leviticus 16, verses 29 and 31, that they, the Jews, were to deny themselves. 
as you come to this table, you are to deny yourself. We see from Leviticus 16 that the Jews were not to do any work. Verses 29 and 31 tell us that. As you come to the Lord's Supper, realize there is no work you can do to make yourself forgivable. There is nothing you can contribute to the shed blood of Christ, nor does anything need to be contributed by you to the shed blood of Christ. If there was something we needed to add to what Jesus' blood did, then the Father would have never raised Jesus from the dead. But it says that because we were justified by the shed blood of Christ in Romans 4, verse 25, because we have been justified by the shed blood of Christ, he raised Jesus from the dead. We see from Leviticus 16 that the Jews at the day of Yom Kippur were to recognize when they were clean before God. Verse 30 talks of that. May we come to the Lord's Supper recognizing the miracle of God's laundering and cleansing of our lives, not dry cleaning, but blood cleaning, that our lives before God are clean because of Jesus' shed blood. And that we would live clean. And as Yom Kippur called Israel to many things back then, the Lord's Supper tonight calls us to many equally important things. Some more applications. We are called, like Israel was called, to serious, reverent, scripted approaching of God. We're called to humbling ourselves and getting ourselves right before God before we try to get anybody else right before God. We're called, as it were, in our minds to understand two goats and seeing Christ work for us in the framework of two goats like in the Day of Atonement, a goat that died and shed its blood and a goat that wandered away living to show the people the sins had been forgiven. Jesus Christ is our Azazel our scapegoat, our departing goat. And tonight we are called as we come to the supper to remember the severity of Jesus' desert when he was our scapegoat. Remember his loneliness. Remember his sense of rejection from his father. Remember his isolation as he bore our sins. We are to come to this table resting in the work of Jesus Christ. We're to come to this table resting in the work of Jesus Christ every communion Sunday. But we're to come actually every Lord's Day, whether communion is served or is not served, we are to come to this place on every Lord's Day resting in Christ. And we are to come to the Supper of the Lord and to each gathering for corporate worship, realizing that the normal Christian life is the life of being clean before God. Being clean before God is not just for superstar Christians that are somehow uh, at a higher level than we are. Being clean before God is the normal Christian life that each moment of each day or night, 
we are clean before God. And when we get dirty before God in sin, we admit the sin to him, call it by name, renounce it, ask God's strength to walk away from it, and we're clean again. That's the normal Christian life. For us, it is not Yom Kippur for one day. For us, the Day of Atonement was in history on a cross. And the remembrance of that cross work of Christ that this table memorializes, that is not a ritual. That's a person, the lovely person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we worship when we come to this table tonight. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord, I thank you, we thank you for the tremendous, beyond words, huge gift you've given us that you would lay down your life, that you would shed your blood, that you would bring the whole picture of the Jewish Day of Atonement into crystal clear focus, that you would be our blood-shedding, atoning Savior and the one who walked away alive into the wilderness, the desert, because of your love for your Father, because of your love for us. Oh, Lord, may we live in light of Yom Kippur, in light of the cross, every day. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen.